Alternative investments are one of the world's fastest growing investment classes. Investors are on the hunt for ways to improve portfolio diversification and enhance returns, especially as global equity markets appear unsustainably high. Alternative investments are those that fall outside the conventional asset categories, such as stocks, bonds, and cash. The alternatives would include things like private equity, hedge funds, commodities, and derivatives. We'll get into that in a minute, but what we do know is that alternative investments are growing in popularity because they are seen to deliver enhanced returns, sometimes at lower risk than conventional investments. Joining us to discuss this is Dino Zucolo, who is Head of Product Development and Distribution at South African-based Alternative Asset Manager, Westbrook Alternative Asset Management. Welcome, Dino. Kieran, good morning. It's nice to sit in front of someone for a change. Nice to have you here in the studio in, in a live environment. Let's kick off. Tell us a little bit about Westbrook and how long it's been operating in the space of alternative investments. Yeah, sure. So Westbrook was started in 2004. Um, it's a business that has its roots in private equity. So the business was founded by who are still our chairman and CEO to do on balance sheet private equity investing. In other words, to take controlling stakes in businesses around South Africa and globally um, and to extract returns out of them. Uh, that business today continues. It's a multi-billion rand revenue business. Um, and some of the investments that we own include the likes of the Corrycraft Group, which I suppose is something that many of the listeners will be familiar with. That's Corrycraft and Volpe's and Dialabed and various other consumer brands. But I suppose what happens when you invest in interesting things is that through time, friends and family and people who are close to your principles start to say, hey, can I participate alongside you guys in some of the things that you're investing into. And in, in 2012, you turn around and you realize that you've got investors. And with investors come all sorts of hosts of different requirements. You've got to have an FSCA license. You've got to do reporting. You've got to give people updates. And so Westbrook Alternative Asset Management was born. And what is Westbrook Alternative Asset Management today? It is still a business that keeps the same roots as what we always had, which is that we are first and foremost an investor and we invest our money in interesting things in South Africa, in the UK, and in the USA. And then what we do is we bring clients along for the ride. And it's not only helpful for us because, you know, we're allowed to then allow clients of ours to participate, but it's also helpful because everybody's capital has a limitation. And the nice thing about Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is it allows us to grow scale into the investments that we make, um, thereby generating returns for ourselves and for our clients. I think... Kieran, one thing that's unique about Westbrook is that we are focused on a South African investor in particular and focused on the world of alternatives, um, which is something I suppose that we can get into in a little bit more detail in a second. Uh, the business has grown significantly since 2012. We now manage more than 7 billion rand in assets under management on behalf of over 1,500 investors, primarily South Africans. Okay, why do people come to you? What are they looking for? Yeah, it's a good question. What are they looking for? They're looking for something different. I mean, it gets into the into the question of what are alternatives. You know, South Africans are a people of savers. We are a people who are quite conservative, but we're also a people who are very well serviced by the traditional asset managers. You know, people who are investing client money into bonds and equities and cash and collective investment scheme portfolios. In South Africa, for a number of years, the ultra high net worth, the family offices, the billionaires of this country have been investing their money into things more than just the traditional investment products. You know, those are alternatives. We can get into what they are. 
Why do clients come to us? They come to us because they are looking to get access to the same kinds of things that the very wealthy South Africans are investing in themselves. But they are people who can't otherwise get exposure to these kinds of investments. And if you look at the experience from the first world, alternatives have grown to a point to be one of the fastest growing investment classes in the world. Clients come to us to get on that train. Okay. In the intro, I said alternative investments offer enhanced returns and improved portfolio diversification. Now, what is Westbrook's track record in this regard? Give us some of the figures. Look, I mean, I suppose maybe let's start from the beginning around what alternatives do Westbrook invest into? And then we can talk about the track record. Kieran, there's a very wide spread of alternatives out there. You know, in theory, anything that is unlisted and illiquid that you invest in that can work as a store of value and something that can generate you a return could be seen as an alternative. Now, Westbrook's philosophy has always been capital preservation. So we are the house that is looking first and foremost to protect a client's capital, to preserve and compound their wealth sustainably over a long period of time. And so our focus in the world of alternatives is in, let's call it the more vanilla alternatives, the alternatives that aren't ritzy and uh, extremely exciting. Those are things like private debt, hybrid capital, direct real estate, and private equity and venture. And maybe just to draw the, the, the similarities and differences between the traditional markets. Many of the clients who are listening to this webinar today would have bought a listed bond before or would have exposure to a listed bond through some form of an investment portfolio, be it your pension fund, your retirement annuity fund, whatever it might be. Now, the making of a private loan is very similar to buying a listed bond, but it is the alternative version of the traditional. Similarly, many clients will have had exposure to a REIT stock or a property stock. If you buy a share in growth points on the JSE, what are you getting? You're getting a portfolio of property, equity in property in South Africa and globally. Now, again, if you were to buy a property directly, which actually is something that most South Africans have done in respect of their home, that is considered alternative. Why is it alternative? Well, in the listed market, you're on an exchange and prices change all the time. Now, there's good things and bad things with that. The good things is that you can get your money out whenever you want and you can have a very clear steer of what the price is. The problem is, let's say you're in that REIT stock, in that property stock, and interest rates move. That will likely have a very consequential impact on the valuation of your investment. And that might or might not have anything to do with the actual inherent values of the properties that you're invested into. That's one of the downsides of the traditional markets is that you have a very, very high degree of correlation to what's going on macroeconomically and to bigger factors that might have nothing to do with your investment. The benefit of alternatives in that sense, and there's more benefits which we can maybe touch on in a second, is that your investment returns are more directly linked to the investment outcomes of the particular thing that you've invested into. And that's one of the reasons why clients you know, find alternatives interesting. What is our track record? We have an extensive track record. Westbrook has an office in Johannesburg, which is our head office. In the UK, we've got a team of over 10 people now. We've recently opened an office in the United States as well. As I mentioned, have raised and invested more than 7 billion rand of client capital across those four pillars that I've just spoken to you about. And the returns have been good. You know, if we were to look at our private debt funds as an example, in the UK, the returns we're generating for clients, and this is for debt, just, uh, you know, returns always need to be seen relative to the level of risk being taken. 
we have successfully generated over a number of years for our clients a return of 7% in pounds, in South Africa, 10% in rands. And then moving into real estate, you know, offshore, those returns are in the teens. And in South Africa, the high teens, low 20s. And obviously, in the world of private equity and venture capital, there's a spread. You know, some investments do very well, others do less well. I think the important thing, Karen, is that for any client listening, you need to build a well-diversified spread of different types of investments with different risk-reward profiles to create portfolio effect that on a blended gives you both an attractive return, but also mitigates your risk and your geographic exposure and currency exposure and all those good things. Okay. And I mean, we talked about also in the intro about diversification, and you've just brought up this thing about uh, correlation to markets. And I'd like you to just touch on that. And these investments that we've been talking about, it sounds like they're, they're beating inflation quite handsomely, but are they still correlated to markets or is, is there some sort of trap there? You know, yeah. yeah, so one of the, the things that's tricky about an alternative is that there is no consensus price. You know, on the JSE, you have hundreds of thousands of trades in a particular stock on a daily basis. At the end of the day, the JSE closes, that gets you the price of the stock. Now, to work out correlation, you need to be able to say, well, if, if variable A moves, to what degree does variable B move in relation to variable A? The thing with an alternative is that it's not priced daily because it's not traded. You know, you own your property. What is your home worth? Well, you'd have to get an estate agent and they'd come around and they'd tell you what they think it's worth. And either they'd price it up because they want to hire com or they'd price it down because they want to sell. It's very difficult to tell. So the answer to your question is that in theory, alternatives are very delinked to the price of traditional investments. But that being said, depending on where you're invested, there can be a level of correlation. That correlation, though, is low. And that's one of the benefits. And why our wealth managers look to alternatives so much is because if they've got a client portfolio that's, let's say, 70% invested in the traditional markets, there's risk. And that risk is that if things go wrong, your entire investment portfolio might go down. And the reason clients look to alternatives is for that diversification. You know, just because the traditionals go down doesn't mean your alternative will necessarily follow. Okay. Just a reminder to people who are listening in here, uh, if you've got some questions you'd like to pose to Dino, please send them through and we'll answer as many of them as we possibly can. Uh, here is one that came in a little bit before we went on air. And it just explain what are alternative investments. Can you just give us an idea? What rundown? You've mentioned private debt. And I'd be very keen to hear from you about that private debt. You know, we're talking about junk bonds there. These are high-risk corporate bonds, or are they low-risk corporate bonds? And where do you fit into that scale? Mm. So what is a bond? A bond is generally a listed, unsecured claim against a business. So I'm a JSC 40 business. I want to raise some money. I can issue a bond. What does that bond give you? It gives you a return, a yield. And it gives you a claim against the business. But that claim is an unsecured claim against the business. You've got a claim against that entity, but it's not like you have a property of security, let's say, so that if the borrower doesn't pay you, you can go take that property and sell it and realize value. You're a concurrent creditor against a business. That's what a listed bond is. What are the benefits of listed bonds? Well, listed bonds is, are, are beneficial to clients because you can buy and sell them every day. But the downside, to my point earlier, is that the price changes every day because, you know, as the credit quality and interest rates and all sorts of variables in relation to that bond move, so too does the price. What's a private loan? Well, private debt is one of the top three fastest growing alternative asset classes in the world. What is private debt? Private debt is quite simply where anyone other than a bank makes a loan to a borrower. So 
in you know in the world of Westbrook, it would be where Westbrook makes a loan to a borrower. Now that loan might be very similar to the listed bond, or it could even have better security. And we often see that as being the case with our business. What we try to do in an attempt to de-risk clients is take direct, tangible security against the borrower. So it's like what a bank does. You know, if you're making a loan against a, a company or an individual, you look for security. And the question is, what is that security? You can give a personal guarantee, but that personal guarantee might not be very valuable depending on how much wealth the individual has. The better security is, let's say you own a house, Karen, I can take your house as security and I can give you a loan secured against that house at a percentage. And that's where private debt is unique. Private debt is where you make a loan to anyone really. It could be a big business, a small business, a medium-sized business, and it can be secured and unsecured. In our case, it's often secured, and that security takes the form of either a claim against the business or, even better yet, an actual direct real estate asset as security. One of the questions, I suppose, is why has private debt grown so much in popularity? And the reason is, if you look globally, even in South Africa, interest rates on the back of COVID are at all-time lows. You know, in the UK market, we were a big private lender, they're zero. If you hold money in the bank, you're at zero. And in South Africa, returns on cash are at their lowest levels in decades. So what's the problem? Clients are now looking for alternative sources of return to continue to get a higher yield in this environment where returns are low. The problem with bonds is that lots of them have priced down to come in line to where interest rates are on a relative basis. And what we see with private debt is that oftentimes you're able to get higher returns for making private loans than the level of risk that you need to take. And there's reasons for that. It can do with the fact that the borrowers are smaller. It can do with the fact that the borrowers need you to move a lot quicker as a private lender. You know, the banks are subject to Basel and there's lots of red, work and paper, uh, red tape and paperwork that they need to comply with. And so oftentimes in private debt, what you can do is by being a better version of the bank, you can get clients higher returns. Okay, cover some of the other alternative investments. I mean, one of the obvious ones is cryptos. But you mm. told me you're, you're not involved in cryptos. Answer that one quickly. Why not? Why not cryptos? I suppose I mentioned earlier, Kieran, we're, we're in this world of being a capital preservation first house. Our number one job is, you know, it's, it's a very well-known saying in, in asset management. Rule number one, don't lose clients' money. Rule number two, make clients an attractive return for the level of risk being taken. So you're right. I mean, crypto is probably on the other end of the spectrum of alternatives, right? So where private debt and direct real estate and private equity and venture are probably in the more traditional side. On the other end of things like crypto and art and classic car collections, all of those things could theoretically give clients good returns. And they are alternative. I mean, the debate with crypto in particular, I suppose, is that as adoption rates increase as dramatically as they have, the question is whether crypto is an alternative anymore. I think our concern around it is that, you know, it's it's still a very, very immature market. There, as we've seen, are violent price swings around crypto. And as a result, it's not an area that we as a house want to play in because it's diametrically opposed to rule number one. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not an alternative, and that doesn't mean that it isn't something that clients could look at making a small allocation to, as many of ours have. Okay, and then cover some of the other alternative investments, please, if you will, quickly. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've, I've spoken through a few of them, right? Uh, private debt is is probably one of the fastest growing. Direct real estate is huge. You know, we have a massive global market of investors who are looking to buy funds or its stakes in property. 
and they don't want all of the issues that I've explained earlier around buying listed property stocks. You know, there's also other funnies that happen with property stocks in the listed market. There's a lot of financial engineering that goes into these companies. There's cross-currency swaps, which are used to increase returns. Might not have anything to do with the property fundamentals that you've invested into. So why do clients like real estate? Well, they like it because it's tangible. They like it because you've got a bricks and mortar asset at the bottom of this whole structure that supports value. And they like it because if you invested in a property transaction with, say, Westbrook, you can get access. For me, the word is access. You know, most South Africans, if you wanted to buy a multifamily residential complex in the United States, which is something that we do, that complex is, costs $80 million, right? Now you can put some debt against it and you can reduce that equity cost to, let's say, $30 million. But $30 million is a ton of money. And it's simply too much for the average South African, even the high net worth or family office or institution or wealth manager to afford sometimes. And so, you know, why alternatives and why through an established fund manager? Because they can allow you a piece of the pie. It doesn't have to be the entire pie. And it gives you all of the benefits of owning those underlying assets. And, and maybe we should touch on some of the other benefits of, of owning an alternative um, from, from a returns perspective as well. Just talk about direct real estate. Mm. What kind of real estate are we talking about here? Residential, office, commercial? Could be anything. So from Westbrook's perspective, we've got different focuses depending on the geography. So in South Africa, we've got a pretty good uh, competency in the world of student accommodation and hospitality. Hospitality obviously has been tough through COVID, but is improving rapidly as we speak. Do you mean hotels? Hotels. Correct. Mm-hmm. Through a partnership that we actually have with the Capital Hotel Group. I'm sure they're a business that many of those listening today will be familiar with. In the UK, we play specifically in the logistics space, in last mile logistics. There's a number of themes that have given tailwinds to the world of last mile logistics through COVID. I mean, as as everyone will know, online purchasing and the take-up rates for online retail have never been higher. And in the UK, you've got this market where you've got big trucks that deliver goods But the actual cities in the United Kingdom are small and you need smaller vans and lorries that uh, actually deliver to the last mile, as they call it. And so we've been investing there in last mile logistics facilities, which effectively are very big open air warehouses that allow the big truck to park on the one end, the small lorry to park on the other end, and for goods to be circulated for the likes of Amazon through these facilities. And yes, uh, Karen, in the, U, in the USA, we are quite a big player in residential, multifamily. So think Summercon or Borwin, except they're not sold to end user clients. We own them all and we rent them out. Uh, and there's a number of favorable dynamics in the US market that support that thesis. And interestingly, more recently, we've also done mobile home parks, which uh, is a slightly more interesting offering. But mm. certainly something that our clients have found very... In, in the United States? In the United States. In, in particular states or... Uh, Correct. Correct. Yeah? yeah? Where? So in the Carolina area, quite a number. But we, we have throughout. We've got one or two in Colorado. Very much focused on the particular park itself. And uh, Is that because people there. are moving more and more into mobile homes and it's a, it's a booming market or what? Yeah, it's an interesting industry. So the U.S. in general, from a government perspective, are not keen on approving mobile home parks. So what is a mobile home? A mobile home is like a house. Don't think of it. It's not like Jerry Springer or a trailer park, right? It's a, it's a house that you can put on the back of a truck. It's mobile, right? And you can deliver it to where it gets fixed into the ground. And it's cheaper. These things cost $30,000, let's say. And there are parks, right, where people live in their mobile homes. And these parks are necessary because they are zoned for you to live there. 
They have water and electricity and effluent structures in place for you to be able to have the services that you require. And they're safe communities. Now, we own those parks. The thing is, in the U.S., government aren't so keen to necessarily approve zoning for new parks because there's movements in the U.S. called NIMBY, not in my backyard, and people don't want them. They're seen as undesirable. So you've kind of got this fixed supply of parks and an increasing demand as affordability becomes more and more of an issue in the United States market. The interesting thing, though, is that there's different types of ownership of mobile home parks. And in our case, we don't like to own the house. Right? There's problems that come with owning the house. You've got maintenance and you've got to fix the thing and you've got to insure it. And you know, there's, it's like everyone owns a house listening here or many of the people listening today own a house. And you know the complexities and difficulties and costs that come with owning a home. So we prefer to allow our tenants to own their homes. And what we are effectively is the owner of zoned serviced land that effectively owners of mobile home parks are allowed to come and live on. Um, and we've seen that the demand for these parks far outstrips the supply available in the US wow. market. Fascinating. Okay, a couple of questions to get through here. This is from uh, Kaibetsuit. Since there's no consensus price on the value of an, an alternative investment, to what extent does that impact the valuation of a company from a private equity perspective when using comparable analysis? Yeah, it's something that you need to be very careful of, and it's something that is managed by your fund manager. And I'll say this, you know, when investing in alternatives, and any, with any investment, actually, Kieran, the most important thing is to invest with someone who you believe is skilled, who has high integrity, who has a track record of success, because ultimately they're the custodian of these things. To answer the question, it's very difficult. Let's say, let's go to our student accommodation example, make it simple. You buy a student accommodation property in a fund. Three years later, what's the value of that property? Well, who knows? You know, we can get JLL to come and do evaluation and they'll say to us, yeah, we think it's in this range. But at the end of the day, unless that valuation is supported by an actual offer from a potential buyer or better yet cash, it's very difficult to know for sure. So you get different types of funds in alternatives. You get what's called an open-ended fund and a close-ended fund. An open-ended fund you can buy and sell all the time. But in the kinds of alternatives where valuations are worrisome, like my student accommodation fund, you generally close the fund. So you raise money into it for a period of time, let's say 12 months. And then you close the fund, that fund has its set of investments and it carries on for its prescribed period. Clients get their money back only when there's a sale. And so you take the subjectivity evaluation away. The question you need to ask as a potential investor in alternatives is if you're in an open-ended fund, what is the manager doing to make sure that the valuation is correct? Generally in direct real estate, that's harder and things like private debt. It's a bit easier because a loan is a loan and the value is easily calculable and determinable. Okay, here's one from Moketsi. And he's asking, are the natural resources portfolios ESG aligned? Yeah, so there's a big push for ESG um, generally in the world of alternatives. Natural resources is something that we have seen, especially amongst the institutional investment public in South Africa, there's a very, very big push for. Institutions by and large are looking to increase their exposure to natural resources and generally renewables and infrastructure a lot. And there's a big benefit to the extent that those funds are ESG and social impacts accredited. So I think in the world of Westbrook, we have a bit of a niche there in the world of renewable energy. That's a space that we play in to a degree. And we're looking to increase our exposure and allocation to that asset class and sector going forward. Okay, but let's get back to this thing about the benefits 
You were going to touch on that a little bit earlier, the benefits of investing in alternatives. Do you want to run through a few of those? Yeah, so there's a variety. I mean, I think I've mentioned some of them in, in passing. But for me, some of the benefits are the things that I've touched on there is, you know, a lack of correlation to the traditional markets. You can get higher returns than what you can get in the more efficient listed markets. But also there's other things, you know. One of the key characteristics, Kieran, of an alternative is that it's illiquid, right? So your money is locked up. You invest with me, it's locked up for 18 months, 24 months, three years, five years, could even be longer, right? And clients generally find that scary. Oh, I can't get my money out if I need it. But you've got to ask yourself whether that's a benefit or a disadvantage. The disadvantage is you can't get your money out. The benefit is generally what happens in the listed markets is you have greed and panic behavior. Generally, when prices go down, people sell because they get scared. And if you look at what happened in COVID, generally equity valuations went through the floor and then they've recovered a lot. So what was the message there? If you'd remained calm and you'd held, you would actually be okay from an investment perspective. Now, a lot of clients don't do that. They see things bottoming out and they say, geez, maybe now's a good time for me to sell. Or they see a price running hard and they buy. So the fact that an alternative is locked up could actually lead to longer or better long-term decision-making. Some of the other advantages, just to quickly speak through them, is that uh, one nice thing about alternatives is that they're often highly structured and those structuring elements can help with things like tax. It can be a lot more efficient to invest from a tax perspective in an alternative, which again can increase, this is the word you'll hear me say a lot, risk-adjusted returns. Returns, you know, is a 20% return good or bad? Well, the question, or the answer to that question is how much risk have you taken to get the 20% return? If you've invested in a startup, it might be a bad return. If you've made a loan, it could be an outstanding return. So you've always got to look at return relative to the level of risk that's being taken. Okay, talking about risk, are alternatives generally riskier? And are there ways that you are able to de-risk that, uh, those investments in some way? So the answer is depends where on the spectrum you are. Some alternatives are definitely not necessarily riskier than traditionals. You know, some of the things I've spoken to you about today, private debt, a private loan could have a really, if you've made a, a 30% loan against the property, so let's say you've got a property worth 100, you've got a borrower and they want 30 years a loan and it's a really high quality property in a good area that you could sell. You know, the question is what's riskier, that made in an illiquid understood space or a bond that has an unsecured claim against the borrower as a security. You, you can answer that question for yourself. So some alternatives, not necessarily more risky. Others, definitely. You know, things like Bitcoin and classic cars and more, more you know, I, I see we, a lot of people are talking about these NFTs at the moment and digital land and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. That could very much be the asset classes of the future, but there is risk inherent there. So risk is more, it's not an alternative or non-alternative thing. Risk is a, is a consequence of what you've invested into. There are, though, things you need to look out for in alternatives. And some of those are that generally alternatives are less, they're less, they're more opaque. You know, one of the things about the traditional markets is that when you've listed, you've got a 300-page prospectus and you've got a lot of regulation that comes with the traditional markets. We're, not, we're getting there in alternatives. So they can be more complex and therefore it's important to invest with a good manager who's got a track record of success. In other ways, it, it is also a bit difficult because some of the investment sizes are higher from a minimum perspective in alternatives than in traditionals. You know, you can buy 10 rands worth of uh, stocks on the JSE. In alternatives, you generally can't invest below a threshold. Now, that threshold depends entirely on the provider and the product. It can range anywhere from 100,000 rand to a million rand to 5 million rand. 
And so these are the kinds of things that you need to look out for. Okay, a question that does come to mind in, in all of this. A lot of your clients, presumably, are, are they all South African or are some of them located overseas? So our focus is South Africans, but there are definitely clients of ours who are located overseas. And so is international you know, estate planning and tax planning part of what they're looking for? Absolutely. Not a, not a service we provide, but that is a service that's generally provided by the wealth manager. So there's a whole ecosystem here. And it's actually something that I will say to the listeners listening in. You know, Westbrook is a house that provides a wide array of alternatives. And there are many considerations to think through before you invest with us in one of our products. Who is the custodian of your wealth? That's often your wealth manager, the individual who you've tasked with the role of saying, what is my portfolio and how are we going to allocate it? And I want to be clear, Karen, I'm not advocating for a second that you put 100% of your portfolio in alternatives. You know, alternatives, in my mind, form an important element of an investment portfolio. Now, in South Africa, that element is 0 to 10% because we're behind the curve. In the first world, in the US, in the UK, allocations to alternatives tend to be between 25 and 35%. So my suggestion is ask your wealth manager, do you have an alternatives allocation in my portfolio? And if you don't, challenge them to contact us and ask them what's available and how it could potentially help in forming part of a well-diversified, larger overall investment portfolio. And in terms of the Pension Funds Act, I think there are limitations on how much you can put into alternatives, right? Correct. So one of the big things about the Pension Funds Act, the Collective Investments Control Act, etc., is that there are rules specifically around liquidity and the frequency of pricing. Those are the two big things. You need to generally be able to get your money out within a day's notice, within a month's notice, or somewhere in that region. And the underlying investments need to be priced frequently. Daily, so you need to be able to know what the thing's worth every day because pension funds are bought and sold all the time. Now, the complexity with alternatives we've discussed on the webinar, and so there are restrictions as to how much, if any, allocation a pension fund can have to alternatives. And so generally, Karen, you will not really have much exposure at all to alternatives through your pension fund holdings. Okay, so this is something you've actually got to hunt down a little bit. A little bit. You've got to push your wealth manager or you've got to push your pension fund manager or whatever. A couple of quick questions. The clock is running down here. What are the key points to consider when making an investment in alternatives? Yeah, so I think there's a few. The first is, what is your what is your risk return appetite? What do you want to achieve? And that is not just in terms of how much absolute value return you want. It's things like what currency do you want to invest into? Do you want RAND returns? Have you got money offshore in dollars or in pounds? And what period are you prepared to lock that money up for? That, that's the, the obvious one. Some of the more complex questions are things like who are you investing with? What are their track records of success and performance in that particular industry? Another thing about alternatives is that, as you've come to understand through this chat, a lot more complex. And as a result, fees tend to be higher in the world of alternatives than they do in the traditional markets. There's good reasons for that. Give me a, what kind of fees are we talking about? Range? range so wise? generally in alternatives for equity, Private equity or, or equity investing, you're at 220, so 2% annual asset management fee, and a 20% performance fee, which is calculated above a hurdle, generally. And that ranges all the way to, call it, 1.25 and 12.5%, so 1.25% annual and 12.5% performance for things like debt. And there's in that range, you, you kind of tend to find most fees. Now, the, the questions I'd ask there are, in respect of the performance fee, what is the hurdle? You know, to what degree is your manager incentivized to perform? But more important than the fees, it's how much money is your manager putting in this thing themselves? Because there's, there's only really 
a few ways to keep people honest. It's, it's you know, what is their brand and integrity? Are they people of repute? What's their track record? And then they've got skin in the game because ultimately alignment is the best way to secure your, your investments. And, and in Westbrook's case, what is that alignment? I mean, how much of that invest, that 7 billion is yours? Yeah, we tend to be between 10 and 20% of everything we do. And it's a nice ecosystem. You know, we, we see ourselves first and foremost as investors and secondly as asset managers. There's a bit of a difference. An investor puts their money where they think is the most attractive to put their money. Sometimes an asset manager is more incentivized to just raise lots of money because you can charge more fees. Our focus is what are the things we want to put our money into. We generally actually use our money to prove concepts. So we would invest in something or invest alongside a partner using our own money before we bring clients along for the ride. And then, you know, 18 months, 24 months down the line, we would bring our investors in for the first time. And we try to be in that range always because it shows our clients that we're putting our money where our mouths are. Okay, and here's a fairly obvious question is how do South Africans access alternatives? I mean, obviously they can contact Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, but they, they, I think there is an Alternative Asset Management Association and and you do have competitors, right? Yeah, there's a few ways you can access alternatives. You can come to us directly. I mean, we're not the only provider. I'd say we're probably the only provider, we're the only single provider of a variety of alternatives in different asset classes and geographies under one house in South Africa. There are other providers who do private equity only or private debt only or you know other things only but if you're looking for a holistic house to come and be your trusted provider to alternatives westbrook is that so if you want access you can come to us directly westbrook.co.za westbrook with an e on the end or there are other ways to do it i spoke about wealth managers wealth managers play a key element in this whole investment ecosystem because a lot of clients are not necessarily you know financially literate they might have uh, they might be doctors i'm not saying doctors aren't financially literate but you know they, they might feel more comfortable investing with a wealth manager who understands sure. this world so you can access directly through us you can access it through a wealth manager and you know increasingly we are starting to see the platform providers in south africa get their heads around putting alternatives on their platforms you know the likes of glacier and i have some of our products on it a lot of wealth managers use Glacier, and so it's opening up slowly. Dino Zucolo, we are going to leave it there. That was Dino Zucolo, who is Head of Product Development and Distribution at Westbrook Alternative Asset Management. Thanks so much, Dino, for coming in. Thanks, Karen.